It used to be cool to build a B2B software company to 100 million in revenue. But you know what's cool now? Scaling a B2B tech company to a billion dollars in annual recurring revenue and potentially a market value of 50 billion or even 100 billion. I'm Darmesh Thacker, general partner at Battery Ventures, and on this episode of the Billion Dollar B2B podcast, we will be talking to Sahir Azam, the chief product officer at MongoDB. Thank you for joining us today, Sahir. Happy to be here, Dharmesh. Yeah, great. Always great to see you. You know, as you know, Sahir, we're talking about B2B technology leaders, about the concept of billion-dollar B2B. And it's interesting, you know, just a few years ago, most companies going public might have had around 100 to $200 million in revenue and growth kind of tapers to 20 30%. For the very first time, we're seeing companies, much like Mongo, go public, get to $500 million in revenue, uh, and with even higher growth rates, perhaps 50-60% on the heels of you know, large addressable markets, their cloud products and open source go-to-market motions, a number of different interesting things. My first question here is, what's, what's going on here? What has changed here, you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, from our perspective, probably a couple of things. One, I do think we're in one of those, you know, once in a generation sort of platform shifts. I mean, this has been uh, discussed and written about extensively, obviously, but you know, the move from kind of mainframe to client server or client server to distributed computing and now sort of, you know, on-premises distributed computing into, you know, public cloud infrastructure. Every time we see one of those generational shifts every 10, 15, 20 years, um, you see a lot of transformation happening and new vendors emerging, new technologies being adopted and the overall size of the pie and addressable market for technology grows with every one of those steps. So I think that's sort of one factor. The other is, Certainly the, you know, uh, I think accurate cliche that software is eating the world. You know, every vertical in business is trying to innovate on the backs of building great software powered by data and their, you know, and to drive their differentiation in competitive IP. And so I think the amount of organizations leveraging technology in that way has grown massively worldwide. Yeah, indeed. You know, look, I'd, I'd love to dig deeper into Mongo and the incredible company that you kind of helped build over the years. Uh, as a chief product officer and GM of their cloud product. Yeah, so um, you know, early on in my career I was, you know, a hands-on technologist and I was sort of a practitioner and in many ways the kind of turning point early in my career was when I got recruited into a, you know, a really strong software company at a startup out of Boston called Blade Logic where I moved into a go-to-market technical role in pre-sales engineering and you know, that really helped me sort of understand how the go-to-market parts of an organization and the technology and the product itself really need to connect in a holistic way to ultimately build a successful company. And over the years, I sort of optimized my career to really sit at that intersection of technology and business and sort of being that that central point in glue, which eventually led me into product management. And um, prior to Mongo, I was at Sumo Logic running um, kind of core platform product there. And you know, I think the thing that was really interesting to me about the Mongo opportunity were a few things. One, you know, with Dave coming in and bringing in new leadership, I definitely had strong, you know, sort of belief in the company's future ability to really execute and grow as a as a monetized business. You know, I'd, I'd certainly seen that prior with some of the executives and Dave himself, you know, back from Blade Logic and other companies. So that was an attractive factor. The second thing was certainly, you know, like anyone in technology, I know of MongoDB's kind of widespread open source adoption, you know, sort of defining a category effectively. So those are kind of the building blocks, but ultimately what convinced me to kind of 
make the leap and join the company was the ability to lead a transformation of shifting the business model over time from on-premises enterprise software to really becoming a cloud-first uh, SaaS data company. Because I certainly felt that you know, for open source businesses, SaaS was the best way to monetize and scale and drive accessibility to technology mm-hmm. and not just overall open source adoption. Five years later, it's been a, certainly a heck of a ride, but we're still, we're still got a long way to go. Now, I know when you joined to run the cloud business, Atlas uh, is the name of the cloud business. That was your initial role. But more recently, you've taken the role as a chief product officer. Uh, tell me more. Like, What are your biggest opportunities and challenges in that role? In many ways, the last, I would say, four years of Mongo, five years of Mongo had been sort of you know, shifting from a software business and really becoming a cloud-first SaaS business. Not that, you know, we're walking away from the software side by any means. It's a hybrid business, but knowing the cloud will be, you know, the majority of revenue and, and certainly the the vast majority of where the growth of the company is going to come from long-term. That transition was largely around, you know, shift to SaaS and shift in diversification of the go-to-market model. The journey we're on sort of, I would say, starting last year or going forward the next few years is really expanding from being a great cloud database platform across multiple cloud providers to really becoming more of an application data platform and not just focusing on the operational or transactional layer of the data architecture, but expanding to simplify the way developers build using other components of data so they don't have to stand up separate niche technologies in and around their database to handle different workloads, be it search, be it mobile and edge data, be it you know real-time analytics, et cetera. And so really shifting from a single product company ultimately to a multi-product platform company and what it takes to build an organization, a team, you know, understanding of multiple personas, selling in a more strategic way, especially in the enterprise, when you have a broader portfolio are all things that are sort of today's evolution of the business and how we're thinking about scaling it um, even further than we have today. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So just looking back, you know, in time, uh, Sahir, I, I was involved with Mongo in the early days, you know, I think Series C is when we got involved back in 2012. And I know Mongo started his journey uh, as an enterprise focused uh, company with huge open source traction, right? There was almost 30 million downloads or developers, even back in the early days. Uh, and there was no shortage of kind of usage and opportunity. So when and why did you guys decide to go down the cloud product or Atlas? Uh, what was the driving factor there? Yeah, so there were a few things. Um, you know, when we looked at where MongoDB was being deployed, whether it be the massive sort of open source adoption um, that was you know happening worldwide or even the monetization of our commercial software, we did see that there was, you know, I would say the majority of the deployments that we could at least get data about were in the public cloud. And in many ways, the rise of you know things like AWS and modern frameworks and programming languages like JavaScript were sort of tailwinds to a modern distributed database architecture like Mongo in many ways. And so there was always sort of a natural affinity. But certainly, you know, as the market was maturing, we we felt both directly from customer feedback as well as just sort of seeing the seeing what was happening in the broader you know, technology landscape that ultimately, if we wanted to deliver the best experience possible for developers building on our platform, that we would need to become a sort of SaaS version or you know, of the service as well. So, you know, being able to just remove all the plumbing and operational aspects and elasticity and pricing complexity of dealing with software and shift that really to a consumption-based model in the cloud. And we felt that 
if we could do that, not only would it be a better experience and sort of ultimately match what customers over time would increasingly look for as the default way to consume databases in the cloud, but also that it would allow us to diversify our monetization or go-to-market strategy mm -hmm. as a business. And I bring that up because oftentimes what that means to people is that, okay, the SaaS version of the product is sort of the down-market sort of technology or product. And then, you know, the enterprise still uses the heavyweight on-premises software that they install and operate themselves, whether it be in their own data center or in their own EC2 environment. That was never our belief. We knew Atlas would always be an enterprise product as well as something that we knew would allow us to scale to the mid-market SMB startups, et cetera, globally. It was never sort of this either or that you hear a lot about, you know, in conversations in our market It is like, oh, are you a PLG company or an enterprise company or a developer company or an enterprise company? We never think of those things as uh, at odds with each other. And so mm. even from the early days, we constructed both a product roadmap and a go-to-market strategy that allowed us to think about the entirety of the you know, $75 billion market that we're going after, which is companies of all different sizes, all different geographies, and we needed a very diverse go-to-market strategy to attack that. And in many ways, did Atlas open up the opportunity for a segment of the market that Mongo's on-premises product wasn't tackling? Or was it kind of cannibalizing that in some way, but still worth it at the end? Although we, you know, it wasn't clear that it would be the case in the early days, we, we really haven't seen any cannibalization. Um, from So that effect turned out mm -hmm. to largely be an, you know, nothing. It was largely additive. And even when customers migrated existing monetized workloads, they would grow as they moved to Atlas and scale over time even faster. So that, uh, that concern we had sort of fell away pretty quickly in, in the grand scheme of things. But Atlas definitely did open up opportunity for us to do two things, kind of um, scale down market more effectively, because taking sort of commercialized heavyweight enterprise software that's got requirements that are meant for large global 2000 organizations and government institutions, and trying to bring that down market to a, a startup or a mid-market company is tough, right? Even though they might love the open source technology, in our case, obviously MongoDB, they don't have the same requirements operationally, security-wise, you know, mission-critical support needs, those types of things. And so although there's a lot of MongoDB in every segment of the market even five years ago, the idea of commercializing that was much harder with the software model. Whereas in the enterprise, you know, we were already a fast-growing you know, sort of business on that side. So in the early days of Atlas, we definitely felt we could do two things. One, really shift our inside sales model, focusing on mid-market and SMB to really be a cloud-only sales model and really remove software from that segment of the market from, from the monetization uh, strategy at all. And so there was an iterative, iterative process to get there, but that's ultimately what we did. The other was, of course, the ability to build a self-service business. So go direct to developer, monetize you know, everything from the early lifecycle of an application all the way through to production. And for many customers, all without any human interaction. And that was that was a journey, right? Because the company had really, you know, in many ways, defined what you know successful top-down enterprise selling looks like for an open-source company. But we had to learn how to be much more of a B2C-style consumer business in many ways uh, to really nail that self-service model. Yeah. And in more recent years, think about how those things coexist in a, in a way that creates a really a flywheel effect um, across the market. Yeah, okay. Very helpful, Sire. So, you know, you look down, you know, five years from the time you launched Atlas and 
what an amazing run it's been. You know, the last public numbers you guys had, roughly speaking, I think Atlas is a $400 million run rate business, just over half your overall business, which is approaching a billion dollars in the not too distant future. So what did you guys get right on Atlas? I think there's a few things that we were fortunate enough to, to, to either get right at the get-go or figure out quickly. And one, I think at a kind of more macro mm-hmm. or meta level is, I think we recognize that to do this successfully, it's not just a new product, a new SKU that we're launching. This is really a company business model transformation. And that means that almost every function in the company, or not immediately, but over a span of years, would have to transform in some way, shape, or form. So support, finance, marketing, sales, engineering, product, you name it, every part of the organization, CSM, of course, is going to change the way they interact and align to customers and how our business looks in pretty fundamental ways. And so, you know, we kind of came at it from that level of a transformation mindset and knew it would have knew it would be a journey, but it wasn't just like, oh, we're launching a new product, get more new customers to launch, buy this new product. The second, um, you know, I think certainly the company took a leap of faith, building a, you know, top quality, truly fully automated, elastic, multi-cloud SaaS service takes significant investment. And so, you know, certainly we had the core foundations of that with the distributed database that we've been working on for for years prior. But, you know, making that really a consumption-based elastic service as opposed to just, you know, sort of somebody manually running around and installing scripts and saying, come back in three hours and your database might be up for a day, you know, come back in a day and, you know, we'll let you know when the ticket's done is a big endeavor. So we, you know, we had the fortitude to kind of invest heavily to build a first, you know, first class product and and really make it a stellar experience as a SaaS service, not a sort of me too experience. And then the third was really, um, I think, just like we think of product development as iterative and constantly evolving, we think of our go-to-market strategy the same way. So, you know, we looked at sort of, okay, we have this new SaaS service. What changes about our enterprise sales motion? What changes about inside sales? How do we build this self-service business? And we we constantly kind of connect the product development to the go-to-market strategy we want to employ. And those two things have to match. And so even through to today, five years later, there's constant iteration, pilots, evolution happening not just in the products and the experimentation there, but on the go-to-market engine and how that looks, uh, you know, Cedric leading the way on that as our CRO. And so without those two things being sort of tied together in tandem, I don't think you can build a scalable business growing at this level long-term. And yeah. we were fortunate that we had that kind of across the executive team, the organization as, as sort of an understanding. And so we're always kind of pushing the envelope on how to evolve. So I was just kind of digging a little deeper into, you know, the operational aspects of Mongo. Uh, that might be definitely helpful to many founders who are building, uh, you know, their own cloud businesses. Uh, t- talk to me more about, you know, some of the inherent tension that exists in an open source company, right? For your on-prem product, for example, open source is often a good enough alternative uh, to, to buying a commercial product. What about Atlas? Was it easier to convert open source users to the cloud product on their SaaS offering than it might be on on-premises? How do you compare contrast the two? Yeah, I definitely think it's easier. And so, you know, if you think about the dynamic of most commercial kind of enterprise open source software, what what we see is like, you know, there's a broad-based adoption of the free technology, you know, development all the way through production. 
And then a certain segment of customers, typically the enterprise, that you have some sort of proprietary technology and support and everything else for, that you're able to go monetize. And so by definition, what that means is you're only ever, your kind of serviceable addressable market is actually quite small because it's really production use cases at the largest customers that have the highest needs. And so you're sort of limiting, no matter how broad-based your adoption of your technology may be globally or in multiple segments, that's sort of one filter uh, you know, for most businesses. The other is, if you think about an application lifecycle, um, you know, certainly for us, like the development, testing, and ultimately into production, really customers really care about operational needs, scaling, upgrading, backing up, monitoring, you know, uh, tier one support, all of those types of things, only really for production. So if you kind of plot the surface area of, of an application over time, we're monetizing mm-hmm. kind of that last bit under the curve. Now, with SaaS, that dynamic changes completely. Like you can start with the free tier, start paying as you get to a certain level of scale. Maybe it's only a few bucks a month, but then, you know, kind of naturally grow over time. And so it expands the whole application lifecycle and aligns kind of monetization to kind of the true usage of the technology in a much uh, broader way. And I think the value proposition fundamentally of a service, as opposed to, you know, tools and technology that somebody has to operate and install and manage themselves is such a, I think, stronger value proposition that ties much more to what people are trying to do in the cloud anyways, which is move faster, be more agile, be more competitive. And so, you know, anecdotally, like there are many, many accounts that, uh, you know, if you look back in our, our CRM system, see like we're closed, lost. They were totally fine with the open source version of the product. They didn't really have the need to go with our commercial you know, bundle. But years later, Atlas comes around and they're more than happy to pay us, you know, a high dollar amount to migrate in and have us manage and scale and operate the database for them. Because it's just much, uh, it's a much stronger value proposition. The other is with the SaaS service, the user of our technology, the core development team and the management chain up and up into the line of business that sort of you know, builds the applications are responsible for the PL of those applications. They are the core buyer. In, in many cases, as opposed to in an enterprise software model, the users are choosing the open source technology, building their applications, but then sort of, you know, most organizations quite traditionally still throwing it over the wall to operations and DBAs who have to then figure out, okay, what tools do I need to manage, monitor, what kind of support SLAs, all that kind of stuff can I get from this business? So there's a dichotomy from who monetizes and buys the technology versus who's actually the one benefiting from the true result of the foundational open source technology. And with SaaS, those things become aligned. So it really drives a lot more efficiency and it makes us a much more strategic vendor in many accounts. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. If the user is the buyer, that definitely aligns usage with value perceived. Yeah. On that note, what about pricing, Sahir? What is kind of your uh, core philosophy around pricing on Atlas and how does that diverge, if any, from your your on-prem offering? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, fortunately, our on-prem has always been sort of a subscription software business where, you know, fundamentally, the financials and mechanics of our go-to-market, were, you know, were built around a recurring revenue model. However, on the cloud side, you know, we definitely shifted um, and, you know, not shifted, actually launched with a consumption-based model. So, you know, we wanted that to be variable based on, you know, how people use the database, you know, what regions, what cloud providers, the size, the scale of their usage would determine ultimately the amount they they pay for. And 
that seems pretty, you know, basic on the surface, but that has pretty foundational sort of ramifications in terms of how you think about customer engagement, how you think about incentives for the sales organization around aligning to just growing the consumption over time, as opposed to, you know, optimizing for big deals up front. Uh, and so certainly we, you know, we had to sort of evolve the org to match the way the consumption-based pricing model for the product works. But, um, you know, it, it definitely uh, is the way I think the market's going. It's the way infrastructure SaaS services especially are expected to price. And, um, you know, we've certainly doubled down with that and aligned the whole organization around sort of this consumption-based pricing model fundamentally. But it's, it's a business model on how we align, uh, you know, better with yeah. customers at the end of the day. You know, we've certainly seen that, you know, go more mainstream, you know, obviously Mongo and also Twilio, Snowflake and several other companies where they're aligning value perceived with the the bills paid, which makes a lot of sense. Now, does that end up introducing a lot of volatility, though? Because it's hard to predict the usage. There might be seasonality. So I'm curious if the consumption pricing introduces a lot of volatility in your uh, your your revenues. Uh, on the aggregate level, no. I mean, that's our, our comfort going to a consumption model is because we, you know, the product is strong and people keep consuming and adopting more and more of it. And so, you know, the, in many ways, um, you know, it allows us to get closer to the customer, make sure they're using the product properly. In many cases, we're helping them right size their environment, you know, and lower their spend because we think we're going to get it back in customer satisfaction mm -hmm. with more and more workloads over time. And we've certainly seen the benefit of that. So I think that's the sort of philosophy, you know, we have to have really customer centric around the way, you know, you drive adoption of the product. Now, that being said, consumption based pricing for us doesn't mean that commitments go away. In many cases, it just means in the early part of adopting the product, people are less maybe confident in how much they're going to use. It's their first app. They don't know how successful the application is going to be or, you know, how's it going to go? And so maybe they're more hesitant in the first three to six months to sign up for a big commitment. But once they start using the product and the scale starts happening, there's a much more natural conversation to be had around commitment in return for discounting uh, around how the capacity they're going to sort of draw down or use over a year. And so it's not like we fundamentally said our entire business is no longer on commitments. That's not the case at all. We just want mm -hmm. the commitment to come at the right life cycle for the customer. And we want to remove all that upfront friction of customer acquisition and say, listen, if you're not ready for a commitment, don't worry about it. Get started easily, whether it's an enterprise or on a credit card, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, on, a, on an invoice or on a credit card, just get started to get using the product. And then, you know, as the economics start to scale, we'll talk about the right agreement um, to get in place to make the discounting and the commitment levels work. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Sayer, what about the team itself? Like, it, it always uh, blows my mind kind of how you take, you know, 30, 40 million developers using your open source product and then identify leads and, you know, kind of fill top of funnel, so t talk to me about the marketing, demand gen, and sales teams for Atlas. Is there a dedicated effort around Atlas? Uh, and how? what are some of the best practices around demand gen and sales for, for your yeah. cloud product you can share? Yeah, I would say the, you know, the open source technology, you know, where we still, the majority of our engineering investment goes, the core database, you know, that we give away for free, is an, even for Atlas, uh, considered sort of the very top of our funnel. You know, that's the like long-term adoption we want worldwide. I think now the number is over 175 million downloads or something. And really trying to drive, you know, global adoption, people learning the technology, even if they're, you know, 
13 years old and may not build a commercial application on Mongo for many years. We want to make sure we're constantly driving this new way of working with data into the market. And so, you know, the, that open source model is really crucial to drive that, that global adoption. Now, what we do, though, is where as much as possible, we try to introduce those users on our own properties through content marketing, through our partners and all of that, that, you know, the free tier of Atlas is the, you know, if you have a community edition Mongo running on your laptop, you better have a free tier in Atlas, too. Why would you run it yourself or you want an easy on-ramp into the cloud? And so, you know, in many ways, if somebody is looking to start developing, the free tier of Atlas becomes that sort of modern version of you know, what used to be running a Docker container on your laptop. But we're not trying to, like, push one or the other. It depends on what the development style of a particular you know, team or individual might be. And from that, then what we start to focus on is, okay, how do we drive volume of acquisition into Atlas into that free tier? So we have a, you know, we've scaled up you know, digital marketing programs, experimentation, web optimization, you know, d broad-based developer demand gen programs, global developer events, hackathons, developer relations. And the main primary metric we measure almost everything on is, Atlas registrations and, you know, ultimately some down funnel metrics like free tier users, paid tier users, how many are actually engaging with the product. And so we've aligned sort of the entire marketing organization and growth and product organizations around sort of this data driven, constant iteration and experimentation to keep growing the size of that funnel. And then what we did over time is we focused on how do we figure out the right customers coming in that funnel and, and get them engaged with a CSM or a seller quickly for the high propensity to buy and scale accounts. And so we have that sales assistance come in, not with the focus on like upselling them, but with the focus of making them successful. Do you need some, you know, hop on a phone with an expert for an hour to get some technical advice on data modeling? Do you want to, you know, get some sizing advice to make sure you're, you're really optimizing your infrastructure spend and you're not, you know, over provision, like those types of things to really make that onboarding experience as great as possible for the right customers. Because we don't want to you know, have a higher or medium touch model with everyone, just the ones that we think have high propensity. And then, of course, as customers scale, there's a natural conversation around going to a contract with commitment in return for discount. And they move from sort of that volume acquisition self-service channel into the sales channel. And so getting all of that cross-functional mechanics working so that you have everything from brand and digital marketing and content at the top of the funnel through experimentation and optimization in the mid funnel to cross-sell, upsell in product going is, that's a constant thing. We have dedicated teams that just have squads around every segment of the funnel focused on constantly moving those input metrics. And then conversely, we still have a very sophisticated outbound model, right? So the enterprise sellers, uh, the corporate inside sales team, where there's a high dollar value opportunity, an existing app that we want to migrate in, a large competitive opportunity for a strategic you know, new business or, or application, we have a very, um, what you would call more classic, but sort of strategic top-down model where you know, we have you know, really sophisticated sellers, technical sellers, you know, running POCs, tests, performance, uh, you know, de decision criteria versus our competitors, and closing large transactions. We have this term kind of omni-channel distribution. Like we look at it and we say, you know, we may have a large customer that isn't ready for a, you know, sophisticated sales cycle. So let's guide them, drive adoption, and they may start on the free tier and get ultimately bottoms up. Or we may have a very small company that comes in through our funnel, but could be the next big startup. So how do we make sure we get our most strategic 
technology and selling resources associated with that customer sooner rather than later to make sure they're successful and can grow as grow with us quickly and in a de-risk way. And it's more about where the customer is on their journey and their maturity than trying to say, okay, we have to be an enterprise sales company or we have to be a bottoms up self-service company. We look at those things cohesively and are yeah. trying to look at the intersection points across those. And I don't really think that's been built yet in our market. I think companies tend to be good at one or the other and kind of okay, maybe at, uh, at the opposite. And I think we're really trying to be the best enterprise sales organization we can possibly build while also being, you know, this amazing bottoms up developer acquisition engine, much more like a scaled B2C company. And so we're focused on both. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, you know, lately, when I talk to many founders, I get a sense that many founders are starting to think about product led growth as the opposite of enterprise selling. And to me, they're one and the same. You you could yeah. acquire customers in a product journey, but eventually you'll still need to sell them using a strategic sales process. So I don't know if you agree with that, or do you think it's you know one you know one continuum here, or are they at odds with each other? Product led growth and enterprise selling. I don't think they're at odds at all. I think, and especially if like a company like MongoDB, we're in a massive market. Mm-hmm. So to be able to reach the entirety of that market, we need multiple ways of monetizing and interacting with customers. So you know, not every company or organization worldwide is going to be served by a you know a sophisticated enterprise seller. And vice versa, there are small companies that maybe a logo mm-hmm. you never heard of, maybe a startup out of Thailand, for example, that could be a million dollar account. You better make sure you identify that quickly and get a strategic seller to them. And those interaction points and handoffs happen constantly within our business. And so you know, we're, we're really thinking about not like, OK, it's self-service or enterprise sales or it's inbound. We must be yeah. an inbound company. You can't be outbound. No, you need all of those engines working and it's about efficiency and figuring out which customers go into which model yeah. when. That's great. Yeah, by the way, I don't know any startup out of Thailand that spends a million dollars in software, but you know, I'm glad you guys got uh, it. I, I, <laughs> they spend a million dollars in SaaS <laughs> services for sure. That's great. That's <laughs> awesome. But what, what about the sales teams I hear? Like, you know, you, you made the point like, hey, there might be a large Fortune 500 enterprise, but they're not ready to make an enterprise commitment yet. They still may have a sales rep, you know, working on the deal. So how do you incentivize a sales team focused on enterprises when, you know, they're kind of taking bite-sized deals? Like anything, any other best practices you can offer to keep sales teams engaged on enterprise accounts, even though they may start small in their journey? Yeah, I think um, making sure that you get the channel incentives between self-service and upsell into sales and all of that right is really important because what you don't want is, your seller is thinking about self-service as a as a threat. They should be looking at self-service and volume as an advantage. It's like a massive inbound lead funnel and upsell opportunity that feeds you know future growth. And so that has a lot to do with incentives. It also has to do with just getting wins, socializing that, showing the motion, getting your most influential sellers and sales leaders to understand and show that. And you know this happened many years ago for us now, but now that's like. The sales team is pushing for self-service to grow as much as anyone in the marketing organization or product organization focused on self-service because they see the net effect of how those two things tie together. So I think you know, making sure those incentives are right, that that's a win-win situation and you know, those tactics you can use there are is definitely, I think, one key area. The other, to your point around sort of large enterprise accounts, let's say, you know, if somebody's got a territory and they've got, um, you know, Pepsi or some large account, 
you know, you don't, you can't necessarily as a business afford to have a, you know, sophisticated enterprise seller with a, you know, million and a half dollar quota, you know, nurturing a free tier user or a developer and a, you know, team spinning up a $5, you know, a month bill. So we figured out, okay, it, you want to make sure that rep knows that's happening, but maybe it's much more marketing, account-based marketing, or, you know, more of a you know, junior uh, SDR style sales profile, helping make sure that those early nurtures are actually, you know, progressing well and they're successful and that you're not taking time away from your, you know, more seasoned sales rep from pipe generating new pipeline in other parts of that organization in an outbound way. And so, you know, that took sort of teaming models and, you know, uh, territory alignment across multiple teams in the organization. But what that allows us to do is say, okay, even though it's a large account, it doesn't mean that you want to take your most expensive resources and have them nurture low dollars. You have to find a way to, you know, nurture those large accounts because you know that the opportunity could be big and maybe you take a year, maybe take six months. But you want that overall account manager to know so that when the time comes to scale that up, to talk about a paper process, make it more strategic, go to production, whatever it might be, there's a clean handoff from the junior resources or the marketing organization over to the more, you know, the account executive with the, you know, with the larger quota and ultimately driving bigger dollars out of the account. And, yeah. you know, there's always tuning happening in that model. We're always running experiments on how we surround an account with the right level of CSM, technical, sales resources of different types. But that's ultimately what allowed us to kind of look at a customer over their life cycle, because we're a land and expand and expand and expand business. And so you got to just make sure your people are spending it to kind of their time on the right portions of the journey and that you're, you're, you're fitting the skills to the customer's adoption curve. Yeah. Okay. Got it. If I may, just kind of up-level the discussion a bit. What about the relationship with the cloud providers? I mean, Atlas you know, is deployed on top of one of the three major cloud providers in most cases, but they also end up having their own competing product, whether it's Amazon Dynamo or Microsoft Cosmos or what have you. Any any advice or best practices, you know, for for how Atlas has managed that that cooperation relationship with the cloud providers? Yeah, I think um you know your term of cooperation is absolutely the case. So just being nuanced and going in eyes wide open with that's exactly the strategy you should look at. There are teams that are highly incentivized to work with partners and drive consumption on those platforms and can work on co-sell, co-marketing, you know, sort of initiatives. There's a whole bunch of programs that are constantly evolving at different levels across the cloud providers and you want to be in them, right? It, it generates demand, it removes friction, it drives customer alignment around their big EDP contracts and consumption contracts they've got with cloud providers. So the idea of like, just because they have a competitive product, not working with the cloud providers, I think, isn't a smart move. Like they are a huge asset if leveraged properly as a partner and in those programs to drive awareness and drive co-sell and go to market. So, you know, we have dedicated folks in the organization who have built relationship over years, both in the field and at a corporate level with each of the cloud providers. And we're constantly you know, pushing them on how to make those programs more strategic. I think we've gotten a lot of benefit with all three of them. Now, at any given time, different partners are more friendly versus more competitive. Yeah. Um, we've been fortunate um, to really have a strong relationship with Google because they sort of embed us quite deeply in their go-to-market engine. Amazon's picking up, uh, you know, Steam as their organization. Their sellers are becoming much more top-down and, and you know, strategic in the way they sell. And so, you know, it is, I think, a crucial part of our go-to-market. Now, at the same time, we are very clear around our, where we compete and how we differentiate. And in our case, we've used 
you know, really strategically use licensing protections to make sure that they can't take the IP we've built and just operate it as a service. Yeah. And, you know, there's always, uh, you know, parts of the relationship that have tension because of that. And so as long as your organization's aware that there's a constant give and take and that, you know, there's, it's not just a paint them all with one wide bribe broad brush each partner is different and each org within the partners is different i think you can have a really healthy beneficial relationship overall yeah it's great so here looking forward uh what are some of the the strategies you're putting in place today as you think about your business you know in this 75 billion dollar market as you grow to three to five to ten billion over the next several years what are some of the 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 strategies you're putting in place yeah, so I think there's a few things. You know, for our product strategy, our goal is to always make it easier for organizations to innovate and move faster by simplifying that data architecture. And so we're going to continue to release new services and drive better capabilities so people can do more with our technology than having to cobble together a bunch of you know piece parts from multiple places. So that's kind of you know at a very broad brush level, of course, sort of the product evolution that we've started and will continue to to add and, and scale. On the go to market side, it's about um, really just driving diversification and reach. You know, I think we're now expanding globally into many new markets, you know, Southeast Asia, India, these are huge, China, these are huge opportunities um, where we have broad-based developer adoption, but, you know, we're still building out our go-to-market muscles, either from a uh, marketing perspective or, you know, we have small sales teams that we have an opportunity to really scale up. And so, um you know, it's really about scale and then also continuing to drive a lot of the things we touched upon earlier, that innovation in the go-to-market engine. You know, how do we think about different coverage models? How do we think about different incentives that just, you know, drive a really smooth customer journey and expand more and more workloads? Because, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we're very humbled by our success of, you know, being the first database company to go public in, I don't know how many years, 25 years or something, and, you know, coming up on a billion dollar business, the reality is we're a very small percentage player in the in the overall you know environment of a 70 billion dollar plus market mm-hmm. and so you know we have a lot of um sort of focus happening on really how do we get to scale how do we become a three five ten billion dollar company someday and build the right technology and go to market engine to power that many years in the future absolutely you make it sound really easy but i'm sure there's a lot more behind the covers that goes in <laughs> Any... it's, it's not easy but I, it is, but it is interesting it is for sure <laughs> Any any final lessons or takeaways, Sahir, you want to share with other founders or product executives looking to build a billion-dollar B2B or cloud software company? You know, I think the I will uh, crib something from our, our CEO, Dave. I think, um, I think it's really important. You know, I think everyone intuitively understands you have to have a strong product and great product market fit. But I think if you don't match that with an equally strong go-to-market engine, whatever shape or form that you know needs to be for your organization then ultimately i don't think you can build a scaled organization and so you know it it's not good enough in my mind to be just a great technology company with a lot of disruption and innovation or just to be a great sales engine you need really both of those things coming together in a cohesive way where the product you're building matches the go to market organization that you're trying to to in model you're trying to build and those two are always linked in a very direct way i think that's how you go build a scalable business and i think sometimes i think we overemphasize just the technology you know part of it and not enough of the go-to-market angle of it and i think those two things have to be cohesive to to build companies at scale yeah undoubtedly 
Sahir, thank you again so much. Thank you, Darmesh. It's been a great conversation. Likewise. Thank you.